Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. series called Vistas. And actually what we're going to be doing is going through the whole story of the Bible, but we're going to, you know, skip a lot. We're going to hit the highlights, highlight film throughout the course of the summer. And today we're going to talk about the Exodus, one of the most important stories of the Old Testament. In fact, what I want to put before you today is that the Exodus is a pattern for the entire scripture, for the entire story of the Bible. And it's a pattern for your life as a Christian. The whole Exodus story and the nation of Israel and the wilderness and coming into the promised land, all of those things are part of a pattern that all of us are going to, a journey we're going to go on. And um, I kind of want to review for a couple minutes where we've been first. Uh, I know last week Pastor Noah shared on fatherhood on Father's Day, and so we skipped a week. And so I want to go back and review quickly where we've been the last four weeks that preceded last week. We've learned that God created a beautiful universe, and He created a paradise called Eden, and He put a man and a woman there, and He gave, him, gave them a world to manage and watch over and increase, but they chose death. I should say, we chose death, and all of creation fell into corruption because of our choice. And then we saw that God already had already set in motion a plan. And that plan is called the promise. He gave a promise through Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons and they became a people, a nation that was 12 tribes called Israel. Right? That's what we learned. And then we learned that Israel went down into Egypt and they were there to be protected. But over the course of time, the pharaohs of Egypt forgot all the great things that Joseph and Israel had done for them. And they enslaved the people of Israel. And these people were enslaved for 430 years. And in the midst of their 430 years of enslavement, they began to cry out to God. And God continued His plan to rescue them. And ultimately to rescue all of creation from our true enemy. And that is sin and the power of Satan and death. Today we're going to learn about the great victory of God called the Exodus. We're going to see that the Exodus is a pattern that continues throughout Scripture and is most clearly seen in the life of Jesus Christ, in His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. We're going to see that God is still bringing people out of slavery and into victory through Jesus Christ. So my message again is is Exodus, out of slavery and into victory. And what I want you to see today in this message is that all of us, are like Israel in Egypt, and we're captive to sin and death until we are rescued and brought into a new place. And so the first point, if you're taking notes today, is that God cares. Did you hear that? Say it with me. God cares. God cares about His people's slavery, and He wants to free us. He wants to free us. You may be here today And you're enslaved to something. You're enslaved to an appetite, an addiction, a sin pattern. 
You're enslaved maybe into a relationship that's not healthy. You know what I'm talking about. You're, you're caught in something. You're caught in your own thoughts. And you don't recognize, I need rescue. Maybe you do recognize it and you've tried to rescue yourself and you've tried self-help and you've tried you know, all the other little tools that are out there in our society and you can't get free. I want to tell you that God wants to liberate you and set you free. Amen? Now, two weeks ago, we read this text in Exodus 2, and it's not going to be on the screen, but we read that God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows our suffering. And I shared with you the beauty of God knowing our suffering is that He's not a distant God. See, a lot of times when we think about the God of the Bible, we think about a God that lives way up there. We think of heaven being up there, really far away, kind of outside the bounds of the universe. And we, we see this God of the Bible as being transcendent, and He is. Transcendent simply means that He's above and outside of His creation, over it all. But there's another element to God, and that is that God is imminent. God is near. He's closer, as somebody said, than our skin. He's closer than our breath. He's accessible through Jesus. And He's right here on the scene. That's why Jesus said, pray this way, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wanted us to pray His will, His desire is that that would happen. That we would see the demonstration of God's life right here and now. Not just someday when we die. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. And God knows, He sees, He feels our suffering. He sits with us. When we sit and weep, He weeps with us. He laughs with us. He struggles with us when we struggle. And when we are tempted by sin, He's there as our helper to help us resist. Amen? The thing I want you to see today as we go through the Scripture is that Pharaoh and Egypt are a type of sin and Satan and the system of the age that we live in, the world that we live in. And um, as we talk about God hearing and feeling and wanting to rescue His people, I want you to notice this text with me from Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Look at this. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have, I want you to notice this, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is the pattern I speak of. If you look at the whole of Scripture, this is the ongoing story of what God is doing in the life of His people. He is seeing our affliction brought on by sin and death. He cares about the fact that we're enslaved in whatever Egypt we're in. He hears our cry, even the cries that we can't articulate with our lips, the cries of our heart that just come out in a groan or a moan or a tear. He hears it and he knows our sufferings, often again brought on by our own foolishness and bad decisions. And yet, He will come down. 
And we see that most clearly when Jesus came to the earth, when God put, him, put on a human body, God in a bod came to the earth and walked among us and died on a Roman cross to redeem us and bring us back to himself. That showed us more clearly than anything else that God is a God who is near and he wants to be close to us. He comes down, he gets in our stuff to deliver us, and he wants to bring us out of our addiction to the age we live in and all the stuff that goes with it into a new land of promise that flows with milk and honey. And so that's the story of the Exodus. The Exodus is God bringing his people out of bondage, bringing them into a new place, and doing it with his power and showing himself strong. He loves us so much, he wants to rescue us, and whatever means he had to take to do that, he did, including becoming one of us. It reminds me of this story by Brian Chappell in the book, The Grip, in the Grip of Grace. He says this. It's a powerful story. He says, on August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. One person survived, a four-year-old little girl from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts say that when rescuers found Cecilia... They did not believe that she'd been on the plane. Investigators first assumed Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway onto which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger register for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, investigators determined this, that even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Chican, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and her body around Cecilia, and then would not let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love. Neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, neither life nor death. Such is the love of our Savior for us. He left heaven, lowered himself to us, and covered us with the sacrifice of his own body to save us. God went through great lengths to rescue us. And we see this in the New Testament as we look back through the cross and we look into the Old Testament we see the story of the Exodus and we see our lives there. The God who went to such great lengths to rescue a people. And we're going to look at that. Now, the other thing I want you to see about this is when God sets out to rescue, He calls people to be His instruments of salvation. People. Look at Exodus 3.10. And God says to Moses, come, I will send you, this is Moses, to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You ever noticed when God works in our lives, he often uses people? And that's really important because I don't know about you, most of the time we want God to work without people. Have you ever noticed that? Oh God, give me a sign. You know, give me an open vision. Speak to me in a dream. Lord, do something supernatural, right? And he can do that, and he does. You know, meet me, Lord, in an in a, in a angel chorus in the sky. Right? We like that kind of stuff. How many of you like those kind of bells and whistles? But we don't recognize that many times, in fact, I'm going to say this, most of the time, when God is working his saving power on planet Earth, he's using people. And he uses common people, everyday people, like you and me. 
And we have to recognize that because what happens if we're not careful is we begin to count God out. We're in a desperate place in our life and we're like, help, Lord, and God's sending help. But we're like, you know, no, that's, that's, just, that's just Doug or that's just, you know, Joanne or that's just, yeah, well, that's, they have to do that. They have to say that. They're my friend. And we don't recognize they become the voice of God. You see, my dad... Um, was a drug addict and a convict and, and very young. My mom was 15 when she had me. My dad was 18, and, and he was into all kinds of really, really bad stuff. And so eventually, my mom, because of all the garbage they went through, my mom left him. I was five years old. And, you know, I grew up like a lot of people. I had a stepfather that came into my life, but I grew up like a lot of people. From the age of five to the time I was 19, I didn't see my real dad. I wasn't sure if he was alive. I didn't know what he was into. And my stepdad was raising me, but I was like a lot of kids. I wanted, like in the back of my mind, I was super curious about my dad. Any of you ever been there? But I also began to develop, a lot of you will relate to this, as you're growing up, you start to develop kind of a resentment. You start to think about, you know, if they love me, he paid child support. If he loved me, he'd try to find me. And so, you know, as I'm growing up and I'm starting to kind of become a teenager and a young man, there's that combination of curiosity and a little bit of like, you know, when I see him, I might punch him in the nose. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so what happens? At 19 years old, through a series of supernatural events, I get reunited with my real father. Now, this man has caused more pain in my life than anyone else. And I have a lot of reason to be resentful. You know, I found out later through a series of different things, there were reasons why child support didn't come in. And my mom wanted to completely disconnect. She didn't want any connection, so she fled. So that's why that happened. But still, I was like, you know, he still, he could have he come looking for me, right? And so what happens is I get reunited with him, and I didn't realize it, but, you know, boiling under the surface, and I was just starting to come to Christ then, and I get reunited with him, and guess what? He's become a preacher. <laughs> Talk about messing up the story, and I'm like, whoa, preacher man, no. And then I come to Christ, and I don't realize that boiling under the surface is this resentment and this anger, because this man has caused a lot of pain in my life. But what I didn't recognize was part of God's plan, was God was going to now use the one who caused so much pain in my life to bring healing to my life. And he became my discipler and my mentor, and he began to teach me the ways of God. And I would have liked to have looked anywhere else. Somebody else be that in my life. But God used my dad. He used a person. Many times he, used instru he uses instruments of salvation in our lives that we don't want him to use. And what I'm saying to you is we have to recognize God uses people. And that includes he wants to use you. Am I talking to anybody? All right. <laughs> the other thing I want you to notice is that God chooses people who feel unqualified. You ever felt unqualified to be used by God? Look at Moses' conversation with God here in Exodus 3 and in Exodus 4, verse 11 in Exodus 3. But Moses said to God, after God had called him, God said, I want you to go to Israel, I mean, go to uh, Pharaoh in Egypt and, and tell him, let my people go, right? So, so then, uh, you know, he... God comes and talks to him, and Moses replies to God this way in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Chapter 4, verse 1, and then 10 through 13. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. He's still arguing, but he said, Oh Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Is that real or what? I mean, think about it. Most of us, like Moses, feel inadequate and unqualified for God to use us and bring salvation through us to other people. The excuses of Moses are common to most of us. Who am I? When's the last time you said that to yourself? When's the last time you looked in the mirror, you had a sense of a purpose greater than your own life, and you looked at yourself, and you measured yourself, and you went through the checklist, and you checked off all the reasons why God can't work with you, because you are a screw-up. You ever done it? Who am I? They won't believe or listen to me. They won't believe the Lord revealed himself to me, right? I heard somebody say years ago that it's okay to talk to God, right? Prayer's okay. It's okay to talk to God. But don't you start saying God's talking to you because you know what they do with people who hear voices, right? And yet God talks to us. He reveals himself to us. He makes himself known. He, then he says, I don't speak well. What's the number one phobia of Americans? Public speaking. Right? You can't, I can't tell you how many people we've asked in our church that we feel are able to speak pretty well. We say, hey, can you help us with offerings or making transitions or praying? And I mean, immediately, it's like, you know, this list of excuses why they can't do it. Because that's what we do. We always find reasons God can't use us. And then we end with what Moses said, please send someone else. Right? And, and so what happens in life? All of us are so busy saying, uh, you know, for that neighbor that needs Jesus, for those family members that need a touch from God, for the people we know in our circle, God, send someone else because I don't talk well, Um, uh, they won't believe you're with me. We give all kinds of reasons why God can't use us. How many of you know Moses didn't get away with it? He got stuck. By the way, if you've ever been in an argument with God, let me just give you a little bit of insight right off the bat. I've never known anybody to win an argument with him yet. I've lost every argument with him. Am I talking to anybody? And the second main point I want you to see today, and I'm trying to move on here, but that is that God confronts and judges the evil that enslaves his people. And that's really what the Exodus is about. He confronts the powers that be, Pharaoh and Egypt, and he judges them. He judges the evil that enslaves people because God wants to liberate us. And what I want you to do in the rest of the story here is put yourself in it and think about your own life. Think about the enslavements of your own life, maybe in your past or even in the present. So look at the first thing I want you to notice is that God's chosen instrument, Moses had to go and confront Pharaoh. And what I want you to notice is that you have to do some confronting in life if you're going to move on with God. 
Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, oftentimes God calls us to confront the evil in our lives and in the world. Most of the time, He starts with this. He wants us to confront the evil in our lives first and then in the world around us. And many times we're afraid and we want to avoid confronting the enslaving power of sin, addiction, unhealthy relationships, bad thinking, whatever it may be. God commands us to confront the evil in front of us. We each have our own battles and we have our own areas of darkness. We alone are the ones who must confront those things. And it starts right here. You know, I was sharing in the first service, sometimes we think most of our confrontation has to be out there. It has to be that family member who's a jerk, that neighbor who parties all the time and their dog poops in our yard. Right? You know what I'm talking about. That coworker. And it's true, we do need, there are times in life, we're going to have to take those steps and we're going to have to confront. But how many of you know, if you just go out in your emotion and in your anger and in your passion, I'm done with it, and you're just going to let them have a piece of your mind, it never goes well. So what do you have to start with in any confrontation? Your own heart. You have to confront the ugliness coming up in you, the hate coming up in you, the vengeance that's coming up in you. The judgmentalism that's coming up in you. Because it's really easy to look at other people and see the fault. Jesus called us out on that, didn't he? He said, look, before you go and you start removing specks from your neighbor's eye, you better be sure you take that log out of your own. Isn't that funny? Jesus had a great sense of humor. Think about walking around in life with a log in your eye and walking up to people being like, hey, Julie. Hey, Julie. Julie, um... Look, sister, you got a little speck right there. Can I get that speck? Now, I can't really, look, Julie, I can't, I'm trying to get that speck, but I got this log in my eye. I can't really see it very well. It's what Jesus is doing. He's challenging our tendency in our confrontation to first call out other people for minute, minuscule things when the judgment in our heart is a huge log. And he's saying, get that out first, then you can do it well. But let me tell you something in life. You're not going to be able to get away with not confronting. You're going to have to. You're going to have to confront this. And sometimes you're going to have to confront stuff out there. And that's the reality of our life. You know, my dad used to say all the time that what we don't hate, we tolerate. He's talking specifically about things that are evil. If you don't learn to really hate it and look at it for what it is and its ugliness and face the ugliness of it and then hate it, you'll end up tolerating it. You'll let it be in your life. You'll continue to let it ruin your relationships. So get it out. Confront it. Deal with it. Amen? Amen? Am I talking to anybody besides myself? Good. Now, just to kind of lighten things up a little bit, I love this little story. Thelma Badorf shares this in The Christian Reader. She says the story of Michelle. Michelle attempts to teach her children the please and thank yous of polite society. She's teaching her kids how to say please and thank you. She also helps them to memorize scripture verses. One day, her four-year-old son was tussling and wrestling with his mom in a good-natured contest. They were wrestling around, and the little boy was losing the battle, and he wanted his mom to let him go. 
So his mom says, what's the magic word? What's the magic word? Hoping for a please from him. And then she would release him. And instead he replies, let my people go, Exodus 8.1. See, he confronted. My next point here is that God gave Pharaoh an opportunity to change and repent. You know, even, even when we're dealing with people that are wicked, even when we're dealing with situations that are wicked, God wants to turn people's hearts. One of the things that you see over and over with Pharaoh is that it starts out by saying Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Over and over, he hardened his heart. Moses would come to him say, God wants you to let his people go. Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to do it. And then he would change and he would let him go after a plague came, but then later he'd harden his heart again. And finally the scripture says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. I heard years ago Jack Hayford, a great Bible teacher, was explaining the Hebrew language there. And he said, what the Hebrew language seems to indicate is that it started out like Pharaoh's heart was like cement or concrete that's wet. And it was, it was growing a little harder and it was his own choice. He, you know, he was making sure the conditions were for it to harden. But there came a point in the process where it's like God accelerated it and went, okay, if you're going to harden yourself and you're going to resist me, and you're going to continue to disobey me and continue to do that evil thing, I'm going to set you. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. He set his heart. And, and at that point, Pharaoh couldn't change. But God gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change. And what I want to say to you is if you're in a journey right now and you know there's an area in your life of resistance to God, you know he's been talking to you, he's been tapping on your shoulder. He's either saying, stop doing that, or he's saying, start doing that, or he's just trying to move you toward some new place in him. Don't resist forever. Come on, resistance is futile, right? Remember that, it's futile. You can't resist God. He, you will never win that argument. He always wins. And I'm not saying he's going to harden your heart like Pharaoh. I, don't, I believe he, if you're his child... He's going to work on you. He's going to be patient with you. But stop it. Stop fighting God. Give in to him. Let him have his way. Amen? Okay. And then God does something profound. And if you've ever read the story, you know that he judges Egypt with 10 plagues. In Exodus 7 through 12, he turns water into blood. Pharaoh's like, oh, we can do that too. Come here, magicians. And he has them do a similar thing. So then frogs come up on the land. And before you know it, there's frogs in their bed and frogs in their stew. You ever had frogs in your bed? Come on, think about it. You're sleeping and all of a sudden you feel something clammy up against your leg. You reach down and it's a frog. How many of you would freak out? Come on. And then the magicians copy that and then gnats swarm on the land. And they copy that as well. And then the flies come, and I, don't, I can't remember. Does anybody remember where the cutoff was? Wasn't it the flies? You remember where? Bible scholars in this room. Do you remember where it was? Anyway, then flies come, and they infest the land. And imagine flies in your food everywhere. And, I mean, millions and millions of flies. And, and, and then Moses comes to Pharaoh. You're going to let the people go? Yeah, okay, okay, we'll let them go. And then as soon as, you know, Moses and Aaron leave, then he changes his mind and hardens his heart. And then... The livestock start to die. And then the people get boils all over their bodies. Doesn't that sound nice? And then 
hail comes all over the nation. If you know about that part of the world, when hail came, they were afraid of hail because it destroyed their crops. And then after the hail came, locusts. And locusts were, all through the Old Testament, locusts are representative of judgment from God on the land because they destroyed the crops. So then the locusts come. And then they go through three days of darkness where they couldn't even see their hand in front of their face. And then lastly, the tenth plague, God causes the death, God causes the death of all the firstborn children and animals of Egypt. Now, before you say, man, God's mean, and you feel like you have to defend him, I want you to think about what this pharaoh in Egypt had done. They'd enslaved people for 430 years. They'd killed them, ordered their children killed. Pharaoh had been a wicked ruler. He was the most powerful man on earth at the time. Nobody could resist him or stand against him, so God had to. And what he sowed, he reaped. In one night, over the course of several weeks with all the plagues. And and I want you to see one of the main purposes of all this. And that is that God was judging the false gods of Egypt. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12, 12. It says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Each of these plagues were similar to actual conditions that sometimes happen in Egypt during the flood stages of the Nile or at other times. They believed that their gods controlled the Nile and controlled their world and that their gods had the power to control these plagues. So these plagues happened over a very short period of time. They were compacted together, one right after the other, and they would have been a demonstration that Yahweh was the true God and that His power and judgment was over their false gods. So in the course of the Exodus, God deals with Pharaoh's power, He deals with Egypt's power, and He deals with their false gods, and He shows them, I'm the true God. You can no longer act like your God because pharaohs were seen as gods. And then he rescued his people through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. They killed a lamb. They ate it. They covered their door frames with the lamb's blood. And as the children of Israel covered their door frames with with the lamb's blood, they went into their homes and ate a meal in haste. And as they ate that meal, the death angel passed through Egypt and killed the firstborn. But all of Israel was preserved and kept. And we see, according to what we know of the Scripture and Jesus being a Passover lamb for us, we see that Jesus being under His blood, being covered, being under His house, protects us from the ultimate death, the second death, the death of eternal damnation. So this this Passover lamb was an Old Testament type of Jesus. And then out of that, God provided spoils for His people. The Scripture says that they plundered the Egyptians and all of the things that they needed. Think about this. For 430 years, Egypt had got wealthy on the backs of these slaves. Egypt had oppressed them. And because of that oppression, they were able to build cities and beautiful homes and have prosperity. But their prosperity was at the expense of a slave race. And now God's saying, that's enough. I'm going to get you back what's been taken from you. So they got all the spoils of the Egyptians. And that gave them what they needed when they went into the promised land, when they went into the wilderness and they built a tabernacle for God. And lastly, God drowned 
and washed away all their past evils. I want you to see this in Exodus chapter 40, 14, excuse me, verses 26 through 31. Look at the scripture with me. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now what we see here is a type for us. When you and I put faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we begin to follow him, what's one of the first things that happens? We go through water baptism. This was Israel's water baptism. They went through the Red Sea, came out the other side of it, and all of their past, Pharaoh, Egypt, the powers of that military, the oppressors, all of their slavery, all of it was washed away as they went through safely and they came out the other side of that sea with their past oppression behind them. And that's what happens to us. We come to Christ. We go through the waters of baptism. It represents us dying to our old life, being raised up into a new life, having our sin washed away and cleansed away from us. And we come up out of the waters new, resurrected in Jesus Christ, ready to begin a new life with Him, filled with His power, filled with His Spirit, and able to now walk with Him because He lives in us. That's a good place to say amen. Everything that that slavery uh, represented was washed away. Pharaoh and all his military power were drowned. The past and the evil of slavery, death and oppression was left behind them. All because of Jesus Christ. And that's what I, as, as I continue to go through this series, as we continue to go through this series, the thing that I'm hoping that you see is that all of it points to Jesus. All of this, all the stories point to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Amen? And he has delivered you. He's delivered me. Listen, if you're here today, I want to say this to you. If you're here today and you're battling with addictions, if you're here today and you're hooked into some bad stuff and you know you are, if there's a darkness in your life, I mean, you know, a darkness that you know is going to ruin you and destroy you unless something changes, I want you to know that God gives you hope. He loves you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to bring you out of that and bring you into freedom. He wants to wash away your past. I'm not saying it's just a simple thing. It's a process and a journey of walking with Him throughout life. But God is a deliverer. God is a rescuer. He's never changed. He's still doing this today. We have people all over this room who've come out of addictions who've come out of broken relationships, who've come out of really, really messy divorces and the pain of that, and we've watched God rebuild and restore their lives. And what I want to say to you is God can rebuild and restore your life. Amen? 